Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Richard Sakwa, professor of Russian and European politics at the University of Kent. His books include Frontline Ukraine and his latest, Deception, Russiagate and the New Cold War. Professor Sakwa, thank you once again for joining me. My pleasure. Where do you assess things to be at right now between the U.S. and Russia? As we are speaking, Antony Blinken met with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, a few days ago. There is talk of more talks. And for the first time, the U.S. is saying that it will respond in writing to Russia's demands to address the Ukraine crisis, something that uh, it had delayed or stalled before. Where do you see things headed now? And uh, do you think the prospect of a Russian invasion is any greater uh, than it was when we last spoke? Well, the response uh, by the United States is due uh, just soon after those Blinken um, talks, uh, Blinken Lavrov talks. Uh, and when it comes in possibly in the next few days, uh, I, I've heard that there is uh, an argument that Moscow's uh, or Washington has asked Moscow not to reveal the contents immediately, which suggests that there may actually be some movement on the negotiation front um, and that the uh, two security treaties which uh, Russia published in mid-December are going to be responded so far in this endless cycle of meetings of NATO, Russia Council, OSCE, and the bilaterals haven't really got anywhere. It's been dealing with the issues at the margins. And what the whole point of this Russian saber-rattling at the moment is to try to get the West's attention above all the United States, which clearly is the leader in all these things. And ultimately, it has succeeded, which, of course, uh, absolutely engages those who call it appeasement and what have you. But nevertheless, the diplomatic process is alive. It looks as if there may be some sort of movement in uh, in the near future. As, as for the invasion, I've always been sceptical about it. Simply the force disposition at the moment doesn't look like it. There's uh, about 65,000 troops permanently deployed along the border. In fact, most of them are to the north, Yelnia, towards Belarus. There is the equipment for another 45,000 deployed, but the actual troops aren't there yet. They can be moved in quite quickly. But what on earth would Russia achieve with an occupation? I mean, it's been hard enough as the United States to try to manage Afghanistan, and it was uh, had to leave with NATO forces last in August 2021. Uh, you know, an invasion isn't was not so much on the cards. It was a sort of preemptive, because don't forget, the Ukrainians also got 100,000 forces, troops on their side of the border. And of course, after the last uh, second Nagorno-Karabakh war in 2021, Azerbaijan versus Armenia, and with the extraordinarily effective uh, Turkish drones, the Bayraktar TB2. And so there was a, a lot of, uh, you know, th this, in other words, bottom line is that they, uh, the sort of stalemate which has been uh, on the uh, well, the Russian Western Front for the last seven years since 2014, Russia said, "Look, we've really got to sort this out one way or another." And indeed, the stalemate over the last 30 years over the divisibility of European security, um, Putin says, uh, and it's not just him; the whole um, elite, I think, have agreed on this. You know, it's got to be sorted out, and this is where we are today. You mentioned these two draft treaties proposed by Russia. What are Russia's key demands? And well, where and yeah. where do you see the U.S. trying to actually reach an agreement? Uh, because Biden keeps saying that taking NATO membership off the table 
for Ukraine is is a non-starter. So so in terms of a possible agreement, how would it look uh, based yeah. on the you know the position that the U.S. has taken so far? Yeah, well, they've that's my point. In all the negotiations over the last few weeks, uh, there's been all the United States has offered almost nothing. Okay, no deployment of intermediate nuclear forces, and so it's useful stuff. Um, but uh, as for uh, Ukraine's membership of NATO, we all know it's not on the cards for at least two decades. Uh, and so I'd have thought, so while they would obviously all sides want to save face, and they wouldn't simply be able to say it's not on the cards at all, we're talking about possibly a moratorium for 25, 30 years. So that's the way I'd see it. And so, because, uh, you know, in my view, this is as dangerous. We're in the middle of a slow burning Cuban missile crisis, a slow burn one. And as we know, the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962 um, was resolved, you know, brilliant diplomacy all around, but above all by Jack and Robert Kennedy. They allowed Khrushchev and the Soviet Union to save face and the deal to remove the Jupiter missiles from Turkey was, you know, it was done very quietly, but at least both sides emerged without being humiliated. And of course, today, that's what we have to find. And I think Biden understands it. I don't think Blinken understands it. I don't think Sullivan does, um, the security advisor. And I, certainly the British government doesn't understand that. But I think Biden does. So I've got, I think, you know, a 5% chance that there's diplomacy uh, will be fruitful in one way or another. Now, total tangential point, but my understanding of the Cuban Missile Crisis is that, is that it was the Russians who let the Kennedys save face. Indeed. I think that ultimately the bottom line was that both saved face. Yes, uh, they, they did. By You're absolutely right, because they, the Jupiter business was uh, kept secret and it came out later. But the United States publicly uh, you know, announced that they wouldn't be invading Cuba. So that was something as well. Let me ask you about uh, Germany's role in all of this. It's becoming increasingly obvious that Germany is not on board with the U.S., there was just a report that Germany has uh, blocked the delivery of weapons uh, to Ukraine via Estonia, a NATO member. And then you had this uh, amazing incident with the German Navy chief, Vice Admiral Schonbach, resigning after he said that basically Russia deserves respect. And as I understood his remarks, he was basically saying that a refusal to give Russia respect, give Russia and Putin respect, is what is at the cause of this current impasse over Ukraine. Is Russia really interested in having a small, tiny strip of Ukraine, Ukraine soil integrated in their, their country? No, this is nonsense. I think Putin is probably putting pressure on it because he can do it. And he knows that he splits, he splits the European Union. But what he really wants is respect. He wants, on, on eye level, he wants respect. And my God, giving someone respect it's low cost, even no cost. So if I was asked, I'm asked, if I was asked, um, it is easy to even give him the respect he, he really demands and probably also deserves. Russia is an old country. Russia is an important country. Even we, India, Germany, we need Russia. Because we need Russia against China. Okay, the Crimea Peninsula is, is, is gone. They never come back. This is it. This is a fact. And we have to, to learn that political issues are factual questions and not emotions. Yeah. And so it's absolutely bizarre. But 
Uh, one can say that in the, I mean, I suppose we could say there has been, to some degree, some sort of informational blockade. This guy was actually saying sensible things. He said two things, you know, respect, absolutely right. But the second one is that Crimea is Russian, and it doesn't look as if it's going to be going back to Ukraine anytime soon. Uh, so two sensible statements. And of course, initially, he apologized and said these were just personal comments. So he was trying to save his job. Um, but in the end, he had to go, I mean, he was forced to go. So Germany, position is clearly, as you say, it's contradictory because on the one side, it's warning against escalating. Um, yet uh, this um, this admiral who, who in the past, this is what's so frightening, which is why if we're going to talk about a, a new Cold War, I now call it a second Cold War, that is actually more dangerous than the first because of this lack of respect. Even though no one, Washington and Moscow didn't like each other in the Soviet times, at least they dealt with each other in a sort of diplomatic and courteous manner. But the level of abuse and distrust in this occasion is as far as, and indeed, the obsession with block discipline, that no one can stand out. Uh, even Macron, when he's been saying recently to the European Parliament, you know, that Europe needs its strategic autonomy, doesn't always have to follow the US lead. Um, you know, but Macron says these things, he's got an election coming up, and uh, he doesn't usually follow up. And of course, he hasn't done this time either. And Germany's position here, why, uh, why have they been so hesitant to go along with the U.S. line. One, one uh, uh, passage I want to read to you is from the New York Times. It's from an article called Biden strengthens words on Ukraine after flustering European partners. That was, of course, when Biden made that slip where he talked about Putin having to do something, having to invade. And he talked about the U.S. might not responding forcefully to a minor incursion if that's what Russia did. But the New York Times points this out, which is that uh, some countries are more wary than others and all know that such measures, punitive measures towards Russia, will hurt the European economy far more than the American one. That is especially true given high energy prices and that Europe still gets 40% of its natural gas and 25% of its oil from Russia. And you know the base of this is Germany, which just reached this agreement with Russia for the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, and construction is basically completed, but certification of that has been stalled. And what I'm wondering is if you can talk about, you know, uh, Germany's concerns here when it comes to energy, what it would mean if uh, the U.S. went ahead with these sanctions it's been trying to oppose on Nord Stream 2 and threatening to trying to get uh, Russia to basically not deliver energy to the rest of Europe. And whether this Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline is really driving this Ukraine crisis to begin with, where because you have people in Ukraine and in Washington who aren't happy at the increased integration uh, of Russia and the rest of Europe that would come via the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. Yeah, the energy issue is important, but just to put it into context, Nord Stream 2 was completed last August. And as you say, certification has been kicked into the long grass and it won't be earlier than the middle of next year. It cost about $10 billion to build. But at the moment, uh, gas prices, energy prices in the European Union have gone uh, and in and in the United Kingdom, I keep thinking we're still members. Um, has gone completely, you know, has quadrupled, quadrupled. We're not talking about just a few percentage points, and it's absolutely disaster. There's a number of factors playing into it. Nord Stream Two is just one element of it. But as you say, the United States has been opposed to this. Uh, well, it was opposed to Russian, well, Soviet 
European energy links all the way back to the 1960s. One would have thought that after the end of the Cold War, the United States would sort of back off a bit. No such thing. And this is one of the factors feeding into it, not so much Nord Stream 2, is the US consistent opposition to European states buying energy from Russia. You may say, what business is it of the United States? Shouldn't we be managing our own energy affairs? But no. Uh, and as for the blackmail and all, you know, energy as a weapon, it, it, it you certainly Ukraine and Poland are bitterly opposed to uh, this the first North Stream and now the second Nord Stream too. Uh, but I don't think this is a driver of what's going on at the moment. As I say, Russia would like it to be opened, uh, this Nord Stream too. But uh, you know, its costs. The, the fact that it's getting an absolute windfall. It's got six hundred billion dollars equivalent in reserves at the moment. Its national wealth fund, welfare fund, is coming up to $200 billion. I mean, it's absolutely the high energy prices. It doesn't need it. It just it's doing exceptionally well financially out of this. Um, but obviously, Ukraine is obsessed by it. Germany has always said that it's a purely commercial enterprise. And they're right, of course. Uh, and the fact the United States wants to make it into a geopolitical weapon is... Well, it's a reflection of the, well, we can criticize US foreign policy uh, until we're blue in our face, but it's yet another indication of hubris, of trying to achieve goals which are unachievable and to intervene in matters which are not really its concern. And it's also humiliating for the European Union. After all, the whole point of the European Union is that Europe should be able to organize to manage its own affairs. And this is just a symbol of the absence of our strategic autonomy. Well, and that speaks to a very funny irony about all this is that when the US tries to explain its position, why it's confronting Russia right now over Ukraine, people like Antony Blinken constantly say that this is about defending principles. It's not just about defending Ukraine, it's about defending principles that of sovereignty and the rights of countries to make their own decisions. Uh, what's at stake here, Chuck, are very basic principles of international relations that have kept peace and security since uh, the, the, the last world wars uh, and the Cold War. The, the idea that one nation can't simply change right. the borders of another nation by force, that it can't dictate uh, to that country its choices with whom it will associate, that it can't exert a sphere of influence to subjugate uh, its neighbors to its will. That's what's at stake here. And if you let that go unchecked, that opens a Pandora's box that countries far away from Europe will take into account while they're simultaneously trying to pressure all of Europe not to engage in this, you know, hugely consequential energy uh, integration with Russia. And on that front, let me ask you, is it fair to say, I mean, you mentioned energy prices being high in Europe right now. Is it fair to say that average Europeans are feeling the pinch uh, with in the form of high energy costs because of basically Washington's hegemonic agenda here that basically because of that because of this crisis in ukraine and this attempt to you know block integration between russia and the rest of europe that it's really it's it's european consumers who are who are paying the price yes um but uh when it's part of the mix um with uh, european consumers have had a perfect storm for example us lng was on its way to some european markets when the chinese who are recovering much more fast from the pandemic than anticipated and paying and they said we'll pay whatever you want and so these ships were actually diverted us ships with lng that's a uh, liquid natural gas uh, were diverted away from european markets to uh, Asian and above all Chinese markets. So there's a number of factors, but 
uh, in um, predictions or forecasts uh, this week, they uh, basically European uh, energy ministers have been saying this crisis is going to keep energy prices up for another year. They would have settled back into something more normal if it wasn't for this crisis uh, over Ukraine. So, in other words, uh, European consumers are paying uh, for the mistakes of uh, of the policy and, in fact, the um, misconceived uh, security um, order. Can I just say one thing? When you say, you know, Blinken talking about values and, you know, principles uh, and the contradiction. Yes, uh, it's, um, I mean, the, the key position ultimately is that at the end of the Cold War, two security orders or two peace orders were on offer. And, you know, they, they were not in contradiction, but, you know, the, the, the Gorbachevian common European home, indivisible security line. And that's the one which Lavrov and Putin keeps talking about now. And the, well, the US-centered, US-led one, which was, as it were, far more, you know, Europe whole and free, but on US terms. And we're seeing now, and this is the tragedy of it, why I say it's a slow burn. In many ways, this crisis has been 30 years in the making. In what respect? Well, it's right from the start, Gorbachev felt betrayed over, I mean, specifically over NATO enlargement promises, which were made. I think there's as unequivocal evidence that in 1990, a whole succession of Western leaders promised NATO. But more than that, uh, that and obviously NATO, they, it wasn't the promise of not enlarging NATO beyond East, the United Germany. But it's it's bigger than that. It's the whole fundamental spirit of the post-Cold War years, that there was a constant sense of betrayal, of betrayal over NATO, but over the idea that, uh, okay, Russia was weak in the 1990s, but it wasn't weak diplomatically. It still had its nuclear weapons. It still had all sorts of a very large army, though it was in, in chaos. Uh, and yet the hubristic character and the, in 1989, 1991, the Malta uh, uh, summit of Gorbachev and uh, Bush Sr., where it was quite explicit. Bush and Skokroft went in there and it's in their book. They're saying, we're going to go in there and we're going to, uh, you know, bowl, you know, overwhelm Gorbachev with with ideas and thoughts. So he'll take his eye off the ball and he won't actually ask for some genuine post-Cold War security treaty. And now, 30 years later, we, we're asking for that precise security treaty, which wasn't actually achieved 30 years ago. Speaking of treaties, let me put to you two questions. And uh, these are points that are raised to defend the U.S. position when it comes to Ukraine and Russia. First of all, so I think it's widely acknowledged that the promise was made to Gorbachev that NATO would not expand one inch to the east, but it wasn't put in writing. So why didn't Gorbachev get that in writing if he was serious about seeing that commitment being upheld? And not, of course, that having something in writing means anything when it comes to the U.S., as we saw with the Iran nuclear deal. But still, a verbal pledge is a lot more uh, uh, thin than a written one. So why didn't Gorbachev get it in writing? And also what what uh, people also say is that. You know, Ukraine now is in a bad position. You talked about Russia having nuclear weapons because Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in 1994. And that was a mistake, uh, according to the argument, because that has put Ukraine in a much more vulnerable state, letting Russia bully it. Yeah. As for the first point, uh, not getting it, uh, Gorbachev and in 1990, the big issue was German unification. So uh, he uh, from Gorbachev's perspective, 
Um, the big issue was the terms of German uh, unification. And the Treaty of June 1990 outlined some of those concerns implicitly that, in a sense, that Unification Treaty of Germany was the substitute for Pan-European Security Treaty at that time. Clearly, uh, Gorbachev made a big mistake about that, and he himself um, has, you know, this is why in 2014, when he said uh, there was no promise not to enlarge, it was a way of trying to cover his back. And it was a bizarre statement because it goes against everything which he knows uh, didn't happen. So, as I said, the, the concern at that stage was German uh, unification. And no one really expected it to go quite so fast um, and quite so far so quickly. Um, but absolutely, clearly, it was uh, a mistake. Also, the assumption was also going to be at that stage that the Organization for Security, what was the conference, the CSCE, or what later became the Organization for Security and Conference, uh, conference in Europe, was going to be the, the main, or at least one of the key security bodies. So in a sense, they said, look, that we'll deal with that after the German unification issue. And of course, they never did. And of course, that's why even, even NATO enlargement could have been accepted if it was within the framework of a larger security order, which encompassed, you know, all the way from Vladivostok to Vancouver. And, you know, that was on the cards. That's where the deeper betrayal, I mean, NATO, in a sense, is important, obviously, but it's a sideshow to the larger issue, which they're now trying to get to, is why didn't we build that one? You know, the OSCE, where there was much talk of a European Security Council, a mini UN. You know, lots of things were on the book. At every single point, Moscow's arguments were rejected. Uh, Putin and even talked the, about Putin even talked about the Russia uh, about Russia joining NATO at a certain point. Absolutely, yeah. Putin's a very smart politician. Like him or hate him, he's a smart politician. And when he came to power in the year two thousand, he over and over again said, uh, understood where this was going. He understood, and I mean, he, he and the, they've got Russia's got a very, very uh, sophisticated diplomatic um, establishment. I mean, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Diplomatic Academy, vast, excellent uh, universities dealing with uh, foreign policy. And th- th- he was told clearly, look, we've got to sort this out. The only way is to sort it is to stop NATO enlargement or Russia joining it in one form or another. We're not talking about actually joining it as such, but we're talking about some sort of real. Uh, you know, integration of their security communities. And that was on the cards. More than that, uh, he did say, you know, to join, but there were informal talks in Brussels held in 2000 and into 2001. I've spoken to a few people who were involved, and it really was. These were informal track two and a half, you know, were quiet, but they happened. When Washington got to know about them, seriously, they vetoed it. So in other words, it was just, you know, what what Russia wanted to join this community, security community. And again, that's why I'm saying it's been such a slow burning crisis. Um, and your question about uh, Ukraine. Well, the other question is, you know, uh, people who take the uh, pro-Ukrainian government uh, mm. U.S. position on Ukraine say that it was a ama- you know, the reason Ukraine is in, is in this position right yeah. now is because it gave up its nuclear weapons, thereby yeah. giving up its main deterrent and putting itself in a weak position where now Russia can boss it around. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that was always a false argument. Don't forget, uh, Ukraine signed up in May 1992, uh, together with Belarus and Kazakhstan, uh, that it would, you know, Ukraine never had nuclear weapons. You, the Soviet Union, had nuclear weapons, some of whom which were deployed on Ukrainian territory. 
all the control and command was in Moscow. So it's absolutely clear that they didn't. Okay, a lot of these uh, missiles were made, Yuzhmash and so on, in Ukraine, and they're smart enough perhaps to get the control mechanisms. But they signed it in May 1992, sensibly, to join the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And then they reneged from it when it went to parliament, you know, the politicians, the nationalists really uh, got, got uh, upset. The idea today of Ukraine with nuclear weapons frightens me more than anything else. I mean, really, uh, it was imagined where we would be today if that was the case. So I think that, you know, big power diplomacy sometimes really should take predominance over this. That doesn't mean to say that Ukrainian state interests should be ignored, obviously not. But uh, when it comes to something serious like nuclear weapons, no, so I don't, and then the Budapest, it wasn't, you know, the, the Budapest Agreement of 1994 with the guarantee of security. It was not a treaty. It was just an understanding, again, a, a sop to uh, Ukrainian nationalists. And also at that point, the prospect of NATO expanding to Russia's mm. borders was not a reality, at least a real, the, the, the reality that it's become since. No, no, it was it was in 1994 that the, the fundamental decision was taken that uh, partnership for peace would just be a staging post towards NATO enlargement. So there was a long way to go. Uh, and, and, you know, it was, you know, the NATO's appetite, as Napoleon said, uh, grows with the eating. Um, so uh, and of course, its appetite now seems to be almost unlimited. Uh, you know, what states will not join NATO? Um, but as I say, you know, NATO in and of itself is not the issue in some ways, because NATO performs some useful functions. For example, it prevents, uh, you know, Turkey and Greece going to war. It stops small states beating each other up as they did in the interwar years. You know, so NATO, I can see some of the arguments there, but it has to be part of the indivisible security argument. And it was achievable. It was doable. And Gorbachev would say that, Yeltsin said it, and Putin says it. And I'm sure that the people after Putin will be saying exactly the same thing. But Putin is saying now, okay, under my watch, and he's not going to go on forever. And that's one of the reasons for the timing now. In 2018, a decision was clearly taken that, uh, you know, that Russia has rebuilt its military forces. It's got its hypersonic weapons. It's basically financially secure, though, of course, low economic growth and domestic issues. But leave those to one side. Um, you know, that, you know, we, we're going to deal with it. And uh, but the West has been very obtuse. It just refused to to talk. And more than that, the vilification, the demonization of Putin and and so on just becomes, uh, you know, it just ex escalates to to crazy limits. And of course, this is where the British government uh, claims of, you know, such like feed into this Russia paranoia. NATO was also used to destroy Libya, and at the time, the U.S. got Russia to basically not block U.N. Security Council resolution for military force in Libya, which was then used by the U.S. to go much further than the mission that they claimed to have, which was just to prevent the killing of civilians in Benghazi. That was used as a pretext to basically launch regime change. How much does that experience factor into Putin's thinking now when it comes to NATO? 
Yes, I mean for him that was a huge shock. I mean the, the shocks were many. The the bomb, the NATO bombing. So talking about NATO as a purely defensive body, it was bombing of Serbia. I was in uh, Belgrade a couple of years back, and the with the post office tower, the the communications tower, and the first bombing gun failed to to knock it over. So they came back again and killed the the night watchman and the uh, thing and then knocked it down. So uh, talk about you know peaceful collective defense. And of course, the invasion of uh, Iraq in 2003 was a shock to uh, the system. But Libya was really the big one uh, as far, and it was a turning point when he said, finally, you you know, at that moment, he actually says it, people tell me, he said, look, you can't deal with these people. It was Medvedev who abstained in the UN uh, resolution, 1973, uh, 1973. Uh, And of course, um, it it went on to the most brutal, savage destruction and killing of of Muammar Gaddafi. The worst thing, even of all of that, of course, is that Italy signed an economic development agreement with uh, Libya in 2008. And worse than that, in the early 2000s, Libya gave up its own nuclear weapons. You talk about Ukraine. And what if Libya had nuclear weapons? Again, it's unthinkable. Now, glad it doesn't, of course. But uh, it's, uh, uh, but it may well be, uh, it may have survived as a regime. And it wouldn't be in this catastrophic civil war and the weapons spreading across North Africa and so on. So, yeah, no, that was a turning point for Putin very much. And he came back to power in 2012, resolved for you know, a whole new cycle. And then when he came back again in 2018, that's when he said, look, uh, from being from defensive and so on, as they were in Ukraine in 2014, we need to you know, really sort this out. So as I say, it's been a 30-year crisis. When you say that Russia was defensive when it comes to the crisis in Ukraine in 2014, can you explain that briefly? Because the conventional narrative we get here in the US is that in 2014, the reason there's a crisis then and an ongoing crisis now is that... Uh, Pro-democracy protesters ousted a corrupt pro-Russia leader, Yanukovych. Russia responded by annexing Crimea and launching the separatist war in the Donbass. What's your brief corrective to that? Yeah, I mean, there's elements of truth in that, but clearly it's a it's a fundamental mistake because Putin has always been in defense of the sovereignty of his neighbors. And it's a controversial statement, but it's the case. He came to power and he was desperate to try to have treaties accepting the existing borders. No, no claims, renunciation of all claims. And of course, as you say, in uh, in uh, February 2014, uh, the you know what Moscow sees as this putsch's coup against the legal. Uh, government. Uh, and so, uh, I mean, it wasn't as if Putin was just sitting at the Sochi Winter Olympics. Again, it seems to be every time there's an Olympics, a war starts. It did with the Beijing Olympics in 2008 as well, by the way. Um, so it's, uh, you know, ready to pounce. Absolutely not. That uh, people tell me that when no, I don't go into all the detail of Yanukovych's flight on the 22nd of February 2014. But if you look at it hour by hour, minute by minute, Putin was closely involved uh, and uh, through um, his representative there to the negotiations. And he, they keep going on about it. The EU brokered a peace agreement and Yanukovych would have left peacefully. But that wasn't enough for the, the putschist, if you like. And so they really wanted to put their own people in there. And uh, so, you know, Putin, people tell me, when he heard the news that Yanukovych went initially to Kharkov and then he went to Crimea and only then to Russia. Uh, and of course, his forces had melted away as part of the deal. But uh, Putin, people tell me that they'd never seen him so angry. Putin 
really keeps, he's very sort of under self-controlled sort of guy. And on this occasion, he completely lost it. I mean, he really lost it. He said, who are these? How can they do it? How can they behave like this? And, uh, you know, and we we know what happened after that. They consider it purely defensive move, as I've argued before, you know, initially over Sebastopol, the military, the, uh, the, the naval base. Um, and then, of course, it wasn't going to be viable. So they took all of Okay. And Putin was very reluctant, of course, to get involved in the Donbass. He opposed the referendum of the 11th of May 2014. Uh, and even to this day, he's been trying to, you know, uh, he's been supporting the Minsk Accords, according to which Donbass returns to Ukrainian sovereignty, which, of course, the many in the Donbass really don't like either. Yeah, l- let me read you um, from a new article that was in Foreign Policy magazine by two analysts with RAND which is a Pentagon-tied think tank. And uh, they point this out, and it might surprise some people, at least who have consumed Western media. They write this, Ukraine has mainly not been fighting Russia's armed forces in the Donbass. Yes, Russia has armed, trained, and led the separatist forces. But even by Kiev's own estimates, the vast majority of rebel forces consist of locals, not soldiers of the regular Russian military. Indeed, the Russian armed forces engaged directly in the fighting only twice, in August, September 2014, and January, to the, January, February 2015, and with limited capabilities, although both episodes ended in crushing Ukrainian defeats. And they go on to say, because um, they're arguing against uh, this this attempt by people in Washington, uh, you know, uh, advocating for increased arming of Ukraine. We just saw a major shipment of U.S. weapons to Ukraine. They're saying that even strategically. That's folly. And they say this. In short, the military balance between Russia and Ukraine is so lopsided in Moscow's favor that any assistance Washington might provide in coming weeks would be largely irrelevant in determining the outcome of a conflict should it begin. Russia's advantages in capacity, capability and geography combined to pose insurmountable challenges for Ukrainian forces tasked with defending their country. So two points there that one, this uh, this statement here that. Ukraine is not actually fighting Russian forces in, U- in the Donbass right now, that actually these are local uh, forces who are uh, allied with Russia, but are not actually uh, Russian forces. And the second one that just this argument right now, fashionable in Washington, that we should be arming Ukraine even more than than is currently being done. How just even strategically that that would be folly because Russia has such a overwhelming military advantage. Yeah, uh, as for absolutely in the Donbass, uh, Putin and Russia has been keeping relatively minimal. It's it, they're going to ensure that it's not overrun, uh, just like uh, say you know Operation Storm, both Croatia in Slavonia when they expelled the Serbs, or indeed Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, the Armenian uh, um, war, Azerbaijani war in 2021. Uh, so. Uh, indeed, it's local forces. So I think that analysis is absolutely spot on. And as for the military balance, yes, I mean, the, the sending of these, uh, the military, and of course, don't forget, the UK is also sending um, weapons, uh, offensive weapons and trainers there. Um, it's basically, um, you know, it's irrelevant in military terms. It doesn't help, but it's adding fuel to the flames. But if Russia really decides to go for it, it, we're not talking about, in the first instance, a full-scale land invasion. We're talking about long-distance artillery, planes, uh, um, rockets, the whole shebang. 
And one could say that within 24 hours, I don't think there'll be much left of Ukrainian military capacity because of the, you know, command control, the um, access, the Russia's air defense systems and so on and so forth. So, you know, in purely military terms, uh, it's, we're not talking about an occupation. So um, this, you know, the finding, I mean, we just heaven forbid that it comes to this, of course. You mentioned history repeating itself when it comes to the threat of war uh, and crises over Ukraine breaking out during the time of the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about another incident that I think of history repeating itself, which is that the U.S. basically using the U.K., the British government, mm-hmm. to lodge allegations that serve war aims. I'm thinking of before the Iraq war, when the British government came out with mm-hmm. the so-called dossier claiming that Iraq was 45 minutes, could could deploy uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction in 45 minutes, that's all it would take. Now the UK just come out with an allegation, it's being widely promoted in the US, taken very seriously, even though there's been no evidence presented to support it, that Russia is formulating plans to install a pro-Russian leader in Ukraine. What is your response to, uh, to that claim by the UK, which has been backed up and promoted by Washington? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, London is used by Washington for these purposes. I mean, the dodgy dossier, which, of course, Colin Powell made a fool of himself in the United Nations, uh, citing that British dodgy dossier. And of course, it's the worst thing about that is that it stymied the voices in the White House. And I've spoken to some of them who opposed the Iraq war. So in a sense, London acts as an amplifier for the war hawks in Washington, because there's peaceniks in Washington as well. You may not see many of them, but there are some. And the second uh, thing uh, was um, the, the way that uh, the British, in many ways, instigated and started Russiagate itself. It was British uh, information, which, of course, fed into the Washington hothouse, and then it got amplified. So it seems that this is a third big occasion when uh, British information, which uh, that the idea is indeed, I mean, I've got the document uh, in front of me now, that this, uh, you know, the former Ukrainian MP Yevgeny Muraev was meant to be the uh, putative prime minister of a Russian quizzling government. And, you know, these are the usual uh, people, Mikolai Azarov, uh, prime minister of Ukraine and so on. This is a document which is utterly, I think we should be extremely sceptical about it. Both the form and the content, the way it was announced, almost no corroborating evidence. And don't forget that, you know, just uh, uh, last week, the United States was claiming that Russia is going to start a false flag attack of one form or another, perhaps a chemical attack and so on. So it's very odd why the United States and the United Kingdom are really trying to whip up a war fever. And when we go back to the beginning of this whole military cycle, even the Ukrainians were skeptical about it. They say, no, this is just normal Russian deployments and so on. And it all came from Washington. And then, of course, London. And why London is doing it, of course, is because we are in a major crisis in the UK. The government has got its back to the wall, Boris Johnson as prime minister. So this is a classic diversionary tactic. Uh, And so we're going to be seeing, plus, of course, the very low level of British intelligence in a sense of analysis. This uh, just in the last few days, Ben Wallace, who is a British uh, Minister of Defence, made an extraordinary statement that Putin is an ethno-nationalist. You could not be more wrong-headed about that. Russia's got 150 nationalities. Putin has spent his whole life condemning 
ethno-nationalism, and quite rightly, he says, this will tear the country apart if I was an ethno-nationalist. Uh, and the fact that some our Minister of Defence could make a statement which is so obtuse and misleading and false, and, you know, with that sort of background, then it's not surprising they're taking, you know, making mistakes. When, uh, you know, on the point of a history repeating itself, when I saw the allegation come out from the UK that Russia is plotting to install a pro-Russian leader in Ukraine, I thought, well, it looks like they're just taking what the US actually did in Ukraine uh, mm. back in 2014 yeah. and just rebooting it and changing the name to Russia because there's net that now infamous phone call that was intercepted, uh, probably by Russia, I assume, of uh, Victoria Nuland, who was a top State Department official under Obama and now back in the same or in a similar position under Biden, speaking to the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey uh, Priyat. Right. And they're mm -hmm. plotting to install a pro-U.S. leader in uh, Ukraine. And they even select who he will be. They say Yats is the guy. I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tani Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. Yeah, no, it, I think that's you know? I think that's right. Okay. He was the uh, leader, basically, of Ukraine's largest opposition bloc, and lo and behold, a few weeks later, he was installed as the prime minister. And the the guy who supposedly Russia is plotting to install, this is according to. Um, information that I've been sent that his, his name is his last name is Moriev and that he's Evgeny. actually been sanctioned by Russia since 2018. And of course, he's not even in Ukraine right now at all, uh, as far as I know. So the idea that Russia wants to install a guy who they've personally been sanctioning, it's just uh, it strains credulity. And it sounds like what the UK did was basically copied their own playbook and what the US actually did to Ukraine in 2014. Yeah. And when Muraev heard about it last night, he actually clearly he hadn't been told that he was part of this plot. So it makes it even more bizarre. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So and as you say, he, he was I mean, he has been under sanctions. But of course, even worse foot than this, th those people on the list. Uh, I mean, I think most of them are in Mos in Russia. But uh, what this is part of, of course, is a destruction of the Russophone political tendency within Ukraine, because Viktor Medvedchuk uh, one of the major leaders of the opposition bloc, the so-called Russophone or more pro-Russian line, he's under house arrest. So there's uh, yeah, this by doing this, uh, it's not just playing the Washington playbook, it's the Kiev playbook to destroy the remnants, the vestiges of organized political opposition within Ukraine itself. And to further that, they've also shut down opposition media, right, in Ukraine? Oh, yeah. Yes, indeed. There's been a full, I mean, Zelensky was elected by an overwhelming majority in 2019 as the peace candidate. By the way, so was Poroshenko in May 2014. People assumed as an oligarch and with business interests in Russia, he would be able to calm things down. Instead of which, as soon as he was elected, he launched a vicious attack, you know, against his own people in the Donbass which is quite appalling. Uh, and Zelensky, of course, uh, did have the meeting of the Normandy format in late, in December 2019. But again, you have Ukrainian politics held hostage by the by the more radical wing. And so, uh, you know, there's, um, you know, because Ukrainian people, just like Russians, are peaceful. 
I mean, there's uh, within Ukraine, obviously, uh, seven years of civil war has uh, has you know whipped up a lot of uh, agitation and emotion. But I, I I do not see in Ukraine a constituency apart from these elites and the Galicians, the West Ukrainians, and even there, not for war as such. And in, within Russia, by the way, it's absolutely clear. Opinion polls show there is no appetite for a military adventure. So those who argue Putin is doing all of this as a diversion tactic to, you know, for his weakening position domestically and so on, it's it's completely false. Yes, okay, his popularity is slightly dipped, but it's still got stratospheric. If Biden had those figures or Boris Johnson, I think they'd be absolutely delighted. So it's, um, you know, it's not a diversionary tactic and there's no appetite for war. And so I really do hope, but apart from London and certain sections in Washington, who do seem to be pushing for 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 you know armed conflict, which is, you know, you step back and you think, I mean, it's just the enormity of it that we have a generation of politicians, and I don't include Biden in all of this. I think his language has been injudicious and such like and so forth. But I will actually give Biden credit where it is due, the fact that he has over despite what Sullivan and Blinken say, and Newland and all those others. He has kept this diplomatic door open, and as I say, in the next uh, in in next few weeks, uh, we we may see a a you know some sort of resolution for it, which both sides, like in a Cuban missile crisis, can can you know um, stand down with dignity and without um, you know without losing face. Richard Sakwa, professor at the University of Kent, his books include Frontline Ukraine and Deception, Russia Gate, and the New Cold War. Thank you, as always. My pleasure. Thank you.